Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by site co-experts Lucas Johnson and Chris Klein. Welcome to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Johnson, with my co-host here, Christopher Klein, and our producer, Uriah Young. And we have a very special guest on for the first his first uh, time ever here on the Sixer Sense Podcast. Welcome in the great Spike Eskin. How are we doing today, Spike? I'm good. Don't don't refer to me as the great. <laughs> but aside from that, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're right. You want to give a little bit of background on Spike? Yeah, I'm going to do the intro. So Spike, if you don't already know, he is the program director at Sports Radio 94 WIP. He's the owner and host of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast that focuses solely on our beloved 76ers. We're fortunate to have him here. And Spike, have you recovered from last night's loss yet? Yeah, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of losses over the last seven years, so it doesn't take me as long to recover from them anymore, especially uh, regular season one. So I'm doing all right. So we have a lot to cover. Spike's on a he's on a tight timeline, so we want to make use of all of his time. We're going to talk about the analysis of the game. We have some personal questions about Spike's journey into sports radio. So without any further ado, uh, let's get right to it. Yeah, so speaking of losses, the Sixers obviously dropped their opener in Orlando on Saturday night to the Indiana Pacers. T.J. Warren dropped 53 points for Indy. was not the best defensive showing for the Sixers, so we'll hop right in here. Spike, we'll start with the starters. I think Embiid and Shake Milton are probably the two easiest to focus on from that group. But just an overview sense, what were your takeaways from the starting five last night? Well, I mean, Shake Milton is a uh, second-round pick who's in his second year and has had like 10 good NBA games, and um, and they were counting on him to be the lead ball handler for a team that they hope can win a championship. And uh, that when you say that out loud, it sounds a little precarious. So uh, he just he looked not ready. You know, he looked not ready. He's not going to have – he's not going to be the, the clipper Shake Milton every time we see him. Uh, and Bede was good. He was – uh, really good offensively, like he normally is against the Pacers, especially Miles Turner. Uh, he was pretty good defensively. Uh, and then there was that that argument, which you can see sort of develop between Shake and Embiid for a few minutes beforehand. Um, you know, Embiid throws the ball away on an inbound, and then Shake throws sort of a iffy pass on a pick and roll that they get away with because Embiid gets fouled, and then. Shake is barking at Embiid on another inbound and it gets stolen again by TJ uh, and they're fighting on the sideline, which, you know, is not the end of the world. Obviously, you know, teammates are going to yell at each other, but the fact that it was <laughs> the first game back and the fact that Embiid and Shake Milton don't really have like a long history together um, where you'll be like, ah, oh, you know, that's them, they're buddies. So I, I think as far as those two go, uh, I'm not surprised that Shake Milton didn't have a good game. Um, and I'm not surprised that Embiid had a good game. I'm not surprised they yelled at each other. It's just the tam- timing is not great for for a couple of those things. I definitely think with the focus on this restart, um, having a lot to do with chemistry, that's something Tobias and a lot of the guys have talked about. You know, having kind of a blow up like that in the first game isn't isn't really a great way to start things off. But like you said, Shake Shake is a very young guard. This is really. You know, he's only had a couple of months of playing consistent NBA basketball. So, like you said, the sample size is really small there. And moving on to the bench, what did you see out of the bench players this game? Obviously, Howell Neto was the big surprise getting 20 minutes, in part because of how poorly Shake played and because Shake got into foul trouble. What did you see from those guys, and did you take anything uh, big away from that? Well, Horford wasn't good. Um, Korkmaz wasn't good. Uh, Neto, I think, is fine. I, I, there were like some criticisms of, of Brown playing him a lot last night. I don't really think he had much of an option, uh, you know, with that. As bad as Milton was and the foul trouble he got in, I, Neto is fine to me. He is a, uh, like a willing, decent defender. Uh, he's not big, so, you know, that, that's a problem sometimes. He's a pretty good spot-up shooter. He's calm most of the time. I thought he was fine. I, I, honestly, I think their, their big issue at this point is that they, they came into this year with Simmons as the starting point guard, right? And then, uh, and then Richardson, they, they thought, would take some backup point guard minutes. Well, Simmons is not the starting point guard anymore, and they found out that Richardson can't, 
can't play backup point guard. So uh, they're just they're just short there. So uh, Korkmaz wasn't good. I'm trying to think who else on the bench. Who am I forgetting? Uh, Alec Burks was like Alec Burks. You know, he's uh, he's all right. Sometimes he can get your bucket every now and then, but he's not a good decision maker and not a lead ball handler. I thought they looked like the Sixers, honestly. Like they they, they look like what we remember. I, I think sometimes when when there's a lot of time off, always it's like when you break up with somebody and there's this big time in, in between and you think back to them and you're like, oh man, things were great because you only remember the good things they did. And then the minute that you get back, you're like, oh, I remember. Uh, and that's what happened. I think every everything that we saw, there was nothing surprising about what we saw last night. You know, um, So as far as the bench, they were you know, not great. Uh, Scott didn't play and Glenn Robinson III didn't play. And apparently Glenn Robinson is going to practice today, so he'll be all right. But, you know, you're, again, you're relying on Glenn Robinson and Alec Burks, who are minimum contract players who you just got for bad second-round picks. I, I, I don't really know what we can expect from them. I know Chris is a big fan of Ho Nettle. I'm not, personally. I think he's a, I think he's an NBA player, but I think he's more of a third-string guy. So, I think, mm-hmm. obviously, the Sixers are in trouble if they have to rely on him. I'm not saying that he played bad. I thought he played fairly well. But at the same point, if we're relying on Ho Nettle to be in our rotation, I think we're – major problem and you bring up a good point our the front office did not do a good job of bring having quality point guard depth on the roster this season and i think that's coming back to bite them now especially with ben shifting to power forward you know that the last couple of years and this is like a, a completely different discussion have just been sort of a lot of questionable decisions to put them where they are but and i, I will blame the front office for a lot of things but one of the issues is and it's hard to know who's responsibility this is but if if you decide that Ben Simmons is your starting point guard you you don't need a bunch of other point guards that the problem was deciding that he was the starting point guard right and and because everything is sort of a every because once you get to the playoffs if Ben Simmons is your starting point guard he's playing 38 minutes a game or 40 minutes a game whatever it is I don't know It, it you can you can deal with three or four minutes of Josh Richardson and then five minutes of, uh, of Howell Neto. That's, none of that is the end of the world. And then if Shake Milton ends up playing, you have him too. And there's all this, but all, all of a sudden when you decide that he is not a point guard anymore, it's your, it's your starting point guard is not there anymore on some level. Right? So it, it, obliterates the depth and I don't know if that's a Ben Simmons thing or if it's a front office thing or if it's a coach thing but all of that was uh was a was an issue so um yeah I think the roster is built in a really questionable way but that specific part of it is I think there's a lot of factors that go into that specific part of it and I agree with you on Neto he's probably not a backup point guard but if your starting point guard was let's say Damian Lillard and who is playing 38 or 40 minutes a game in the playoffs, is it bad to have Neto playing eight minutes? I, I don't think so. But, uh, but you know, the way that they're set up puts him in a position to play a lot more, especially when Shake Milton is as bad as he was. Yeah, I think you make a lot of good points there, Spike. And I think that's a pretty um, perfect segue into our next point, which is Brett Brown. Every time the Sixers lose, obviously a large portion of the blame, at least on Twitter, often gets shifted to Brown. He's kind of the scapegoat uh, for a lot of people. Did you see anything particular last night that you would blame on Brown? And what did you think of the coaching decisions overall? You know, I think I think Mike O'Connor, who writes for us, I think makes a really good point about Brown is that he deserves a significant amount of blame for this year. But what tends to get blamed on him is the wrong things. Like I think, I think most of the blame that I'm seeing this morning is him playing Neto too much and whatever uh, TJ Warren did. Well, if you have to guard TJ Warren with two people, you're fucked. Like you're, you shouldn't. If if you can, if you have Ben Simmons in your starting lineup and you still have to double team TJ Warren, you're gonna lose. Right. So that like, I, I don't put that on Brett Brown. I, I put that on, it, that was the worst defensive game I've seen Ben Simmons play in the last two years. He got cooked off ball. He got cooked on ball. Again, we're talking about TJ Warren who can score. Absolutely. But like the, the effort and the attention to detail there was bad. Um, and then the Neto thing, I, I don't, as I've said, I don't 
blame him for. I don't, I don't know what his choice was. So, but to that end, I, I don't think that Brett has done anything this year that, that I would say the Sixers were good because Brett did this, you know, and, and that's a problem, right? Especially when you have a, a, a roster that's misshapen. I just said on, on our, the podcast we recorded this morning, if you were to hire Brett Brown right now and he was to get a look at this roster, I think I'd be more confident without all this baggage and without all the stuff that he's been through and thought about that he could look at it and figure something out and be able to get them to buy into roles that they were unhappy with. But I think sometimes you're just there for too long and you're staring at the same problem for too long and, and you can't solve the problem anymore because you've been looking at it too long. It's like trying to find your keys. And if, if you ask somebody else to try to find your keys, they find them in one second because they look at the obvious place that they were. But you've been looking at this problem for so long, it becomes so frustrating. You, you, you think of, you just, you can't think of the obvious things that are there. So I don't blame him for the TJ Warren thing and I don't blame him for the Neto thing, but I do blame him for the fact that this team has been horrible every time Joel Embiid stepped off the court for three years. You know, like every time we talk about, oh, they didn't have a good backup center. Like that's bullshit. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be a minus 27 when the guy's not on the court. I don't care who the backup center is. I don't care if it's Greg Monroe or Kylo Quinn. Every team just survives with bad backup centers. And at this point, even though Al Horford is not the Al Horford that we were hoping for, he's still like pretty good. And, and definitely good enough to be the backup center on a team who has the best center in the league. And they, they were all horrible without him on the court. And I think that's on Brett. I think the fact that um, the, the defense isn't elite, is only good, is on Udoka, but it's also on Brett. Um, I think the fact that uh, he hasn't – he got Ben Simmons to buy into this new role for all of one half of one scrimmage game, basically. I think that's, that's on Brett. You know, I, I think there's a lot of oh, partially, not fully, but partially on Brett. I think the, the question about like Embiid's conditioning is partially on Brett. And I, I do think that it's possible that we've come to a point where he's just been here too long. No, I, I, I mean, you kind of hit it on the head there, Spike. I, I don't really think there's much more I can add to that. You're, you're right, especially when it comes to – in the NBA especially, sometimes coaches are there too long to where their voice becomes – Mm-hmm. null and void or when they can't seem to figure it out anymore and you know there are a few that haven't like Greg Popovich but obviously Brooke Brown isn't Greg Popovich and I think you know and it's like you said it, it may be in a different situation Brooke Brown could figure this out but based on the situation that he's in and the fact that he's been there so long and maybe it's, maybe it's time but at the same point I don't know who you would replace him with and you know that's another discussion for another day maybe we can have you back on but I think for now it's just like I don't know who we would who would be a clear upgrade except for maybe one or two candidates. Yeah, I think that's a cop out though. And I, again, I think Brett's a good coach, and I think if he wants to be, will be a coach in the NBA for a long time. And I he's been through sort of an unprecedented thing here. But when when the Raptors decided they wanted to make a coaching change, I don't think any one of us on this right now would have gone like, "Oh, Nick Nurse, they got to hire Nick Nurse. He'll be a he'll be he'll be great." Like nobody knew that. None of us knew Brett Brown before Brett Brown got here. And I, I just, I don't think you have to go and hire whoever, you know, and everybody wanted David Fisdale for a little while and, uh, and he, he's not had success. So um, I, I don't think you need to go out and get Jeff Van Gundy or whoever the, the sort of favorite highlight celebrity coaches. I just, I think there are some, I, I don't think you can let the fact that there's nobody better stop you from because obviously there's somebody better because they're not good enough so th- th- like there has to be somebody better and it's it's up to the front office now whether we think the front office and ownership can convince that person to come here and take that job is a different story I, I don't know if that's true but i don't think you can let like well we can't find any better anybody better i that the, the the team is needs to win too badly and is in too precarious a position to i think take that that particular stance Though I understand what you're saying. I, I don't fair. think they can go that way. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying I, – I mean, just to be clear, I'm not – you know, at the moment, I, there are a few candidates that I can think that are better. I'm just saying overall the the pool to choose from is in deep. And you're right. There could be a Nick Nurse type of thing. Connor Johnson from the Bluecoats, he's impressed me from what he's done from a developmental standpoint this season, especially with Christ Kumaji. 
Like, I don't think any, I don't know if you follow Blue Coats, but Christ Kamaji, I think he deserved a, blue, a two-way contract uh, next season. But I think, you know, you know, there could be those, those diamonds in the roughs, and that could very well happen. I'm just saying from the top tier of candidates, I can only mm-hmm. think maybe like Tyron Liu uh, or maybe even Jason Kidd, maybe not as much Jason Kidd as Tyron Liu, but, you know, somebody like that. But, you know, overall that pool is very small, and that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, I think the pool that we know of is small, but I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. the pool that we don't know of is small. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a different – it's really important. You know, we had Daryl Morey on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him if he would rather have a coach that was like an A-plus in relationship with players and a C on, on strategy – or a coach that is an A plus on strategy and a C with relationship with players. And he took the relationship with players coach. And I think that's something we can never know. You know, that's something that I, I believe that Tyron Lou has. And I, I would guess that Jason Kidd has, even though all of us would, would, would probably be on the side that neither coach, I don't think is a strategic mastermind. I don't even, Doc Rivers is not a strategic mastermind. Like you, you, when you look at those, those Celtics teams, they were never particularly efficient offensively or defensively, but those players bought in and they believed in him. And I think that's important too. And I, I don't know that we're seeing that right now with the Sixers. Yeah, I think that's all fair, Spike. And, and just to wrap up our talk um, about the Sixers-Pacers game, um, we mentioned the Embiid and Shake argument we mentioned you know how poor Ben was on defense um were there any positives for you and how concerned are you after uh just one game inside the bubble well I thought Tobias Harris looked uh aggressive particularly shooting threes everybody looks better when their shot goes in uh but but he he looked like he had a pretty quick trigger on threes which he he doesn't typically have he likes to be comfortable, and he was taking shots that felt quicker to me, and it felt like he was more aggressive offensively. I thought the other positive was that Embiid definitely, you know, we've typically seen him come after offseason looking out of shape, and he didn't. He looked in shape, and I thought that was a positive as well. So I thought those two things were good to take away. I'm neither, like, optimistic nor pessimistic after that. My feelings haven't changed. I, I think it all – I think they're a team that loses in the first or second round, depending who they play. I can't see them beating Milwaukee uh, in any way. I like. I think they'd be a pretty serious underdog versus Toronto. Uh, I think they could beat Mo- Miami. I think they would beat Indiana, and I think the Celtics would be a toss-up. And I, I, I don't think it, nothing of what I saw last night changes that. I think if I had seen them c- clicking like they did for the first five minutes throughout the whole game. I, I may have felt like more positive, uh, but they just looked like the Sixers to me yesterday. So I don't, I don't really feel any different. So Spike, awesome. I, uh, so Spike real quick. I, uh, I have the same sentiments as Mike. I, I picked the Sixers to go eight and oh, and that's ah, just yeah. down the tubes. And it, it made it worse for me last night because I dropped a couple shekels. I took the Sixers minus six and that didn't work out at all. Well, well I, I bet, 50 on Ben to hit a three uh, at plus 800. Uh, and then I bet another 20 plus 870 because DraftKings had a special. And I, I, I'm 70 bucks Ugh. in the hole from last night too. So if I, if, I can, if I can take that with a smile, I think we can all put the game in a little bit of perspective, right? To be fair, I want to add this. I think me and Chris, and I forget who our guest was, but I think we did a – you know, pick if the Sixers would win each game. And I think we all had the Sixers losing this game. Right, Chris? Yeah, that that sounds about right. <laughs> so we had the Sixers losing this game anyway. So oh, well, there this you go. wasn't yeah. a surprise to me. Yeah. So I guess we're going to move on here. We're going to talk about you, Spike, and the Ricky and all that fun stuff. And I'll let Lucas jump right in here with the first question. We always ask people who come on here, our guests, you know, what made them get into this business? So, I'm curious, what made you get into radio broadcasting, Spike? Well, I mean, radio was, I went to college and didn't know what I wanted to do. And I took a communications class and I started uh, doing music and sports stuff at the uh, campus radio station. I just loved it. I love the, uh, it was radio at the time, but now it's radio and podcasting. I, I think the thing that I like about it the most is that people listen alone. And uh, so you can sort of just talk to one person. Like you can imagine you're having a conversation with one person and it's sort of a, a really personal connection there. And I've always liked that. I worked in music radio for about 15 years. I love music and 
Uh, I loved the idea of turning people on to new stuff. I loved working with local bands. I loved all that stuff. But the, the music radio industry changed in a way that made it sort of less, less rewarding for that particular thing that I like to do. And, uh, and as I got more bored, I started doing more uh, sports stuff on the side. I started writing and podcasting when I worked for a rock station uh, doing, doing basketball stuff. And, uh, and when that station went off the air and I was out of a job for a little while and I came back and I worked for WIP, I ran the website and the social media accounts and did like a show a week. I started doing the podcasting thing basically on the side just to get reps uh, because I hadn't done that before. I hadn't done, I'd done radio for a long time, but I hadn't done like sports and I hadn't done long form talk. So I did an Eagles podcast every week. I actually did a sports betting podcast every week, like seven or eight years ago, even though I'm not a really a gambler at all. Uh, and we started the Ricky seven years ago and it was really all for reps and, and because I liked doing it. So, um, so that was the sort of the journey. And then over the last um, since 2012, my, my role at WIP has, has gotten bigger since then. For sure. And just maybe talking about when you really started getting into sports broadcasting, basketball, stuff like that, what were some goals maybe that you had for yourself personally? And how did you kind of see um, your journey unfolding? And how has it maybe um, been different from what you expected? So this is bad advice, but I don't really have goals um, like that, or I don't have long-term goals. Uh, I only, I, so my, my long-term goal when I got into radio was to be the music director of 94 WYSP. That's all I wanted to do. And by the time I was 25, I had that job and I didn't know what to do afterwards. Right. Like I, I didn't know what my goal should be. And I knew I didn't want to work a corporate and I, um, and then, you know, WYSP started putting talk programming on and I started realizing that, that my, like my long-term plans, if you're in this industry, are pretty tough to pretty tough to figure out, right? Like I, I because there's so many twists and turns along the way. Um, what I basically decided was I will just cross every bridge as I come to it and make every turn as it is in front of me, with the goal to be to do what I find uh, inspiring and what I like doing. Um, and that's a it's a a goal that most people don't get to do in their job, but I do. I, I have been able to do that. So it, my goal was never to be program director of WIP. And my goal was never to have a, like a huge basketball podcast. That was never the goal. It was just whatever was in front of me, I would decide if it was an opportunity that seemed intriguing to me. And if it was, I would do it in my way, in the way that would make me happy and make me f be fulfilled. And that's what's gotten us here. Like the entire rights to Ricky Sanchez thing, the, the reason that I know which t-shirts of ours will sell and which guests will be good is because the entire thing has been created in the, in the image of what I like. <laughs> so at this point, the only people still riding with us are the people who have answered yes to every question along the way, right? Like it's like this uh, choose your own adventure book. And I've, I've been the, the, the person choosing which way to go. And the people who are still here are the people who choose, chose the same way. So, um, I, you know, the thing that I've learned is that doing a job, you know, I work a lot, you know, between my job and now with the Reiki, like I'm the, the host and the, the, the producer and I do the website and the social media and I do the accounting and the sales and the, like, it's just a lot of sh shit. <laughs> and I, I didn't know how to do any of it and I didn't set out to do any of it. They were just all decisions in front of me that I had to make to push it forward. So um, that's a long answer. Um, I, I guess the short answer is I didn't know what it was going to be. So it hasn't, it, it hasn't been different or the same as I've expected, though I wouldn't have expected any of this, if that makes any sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to, so you kind of already talked about the Ricky and why you got into podcasting. So let me alter my question a little bit. What mm -hmm. made you come up with the idea of the title, you know, the rights to Ricky Sanchez? Um, <laughs> we came up with like 15 names and uh, they were all weird. And um, everything about the pod so far has been about making decisions so so the only people who would get it who are the people who are in. You know, that's what we want to do. We want the t-shirts to be weird. We want the, uh, 
the like the the way to identify that you listen to the podcast to be weird. We want everything to be weird. So the only people who get it are the people who are in. Um, and this just sort of seemed. I was looking through transactions trying to come up with a name, and uh, and they traded the rights to Ricky Sanchez for Sam Young in 2011, I guess it was, to Memphis. And I I just thought it was a it looked funny to me. And when I said it to Mike, like we both agreed that that was the one. There was like a long list of names, but the rights to Ricky Sanchez just seemed like the one. So um, it's, yeah, it's sort of hard to describe. It wasn't really a long process. It just, it was one that we, we both felt was, was right. That's great. And you, you mentioned Mike. Can you maybe just talk about um, how you came across Mike, how you met him, and how he ended up as your co-host for the Ricky? Yeah, they, uh, he was writing for Liberty Ballers, and he insulted my dad on a post that he wrote. And I wrote in the comments that I thought it was funny. I think I sent him an email. And I started having him on my late night WIP show, um, like you know, once every few weeks. So I was on 10 to 2, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., like once a week. And, uh, and we just had, it seemed like instantly we had just sort of a good like rapport on when we were on. And uh, I asked him if he wanted to do a Sixers podcast and he said yes. And that was it. I, I was telling, um, we, we started selling these new masks today from this, this store in Philadelphia. And I was talking to the owner of the store and she was saying that she knew some of Mike's family. And I mentioned to her that my only real relationship with Mike is on the podcast. Like we've maybe been in the same room like seven times in, in seven years, you know, uh, for live events and podcast recordings. But um, like our entire relationship has been built talking on the podcast. So you're he- like, if you listen through that time, you hear our relationship become what it is because we don't really talk that much outside of the pod. Like we talk about logistics, uh, you know, Hey, do you want to do this shirt? Hey, do you want to record this day? Hey, do you want to have this guest on? Um, but there's very little other conversation. So that's how it, that's how it evolved and got to where it is. That's a, that, that's weird. a great backstory. I did not yeah. know that, uh, Mike was on, uh, Liberty ballers, um, a little bit before my time there, but, um, yeah, before I got into podcasting but uh, and writing. But um, we do have a question to ask you. When is the next fly the process? And how has it grown over the years? Well, all the live events are on pause. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, like, um, the, the events have grown. I remember the first trip we did was to Brooklyn, and it was in the middle of the week. And I think we had like 100 people. And then the last couple of years, last few years, Milwaukee, and Minnesota and Indianapolis have all been like four or 500 people. Um, there's so, there's such a good time because they're really just the diehards. It's really like the people that go on those trips are the diehards. And what also is nice is because it's not just Sixers because it's like a trip to a new city. You have people bringing their boyfriends or girlfriends on who aren't into the pod, but just want to go on the trip and we've had kids and that sort of stuff. So it's really, um, it's been neat. I, and we can't really ever figure out what the trip is until we see the schedule because I can never do it around NFL playoff time because of the, because of work for me. Um, and we need to do it on a weekend or Friday, Saturday. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. So the, the next time that there are actually road games that uh, people can attend is, is the next time we'll figure out the, uh, the trip. So I've, I've been saving up Spike. I'm going to the next one. Once the virus is, everything's back to normal, I will be there. And hopefully yeah. Chris and, and Lucas can join us. So I have the next question yeah, because it's involved with a book that I was able to buy as yeah. soon as it came out. I read it in one day because it just was fascinating to me. So this is obviously about the book uh, written about the Sixers and the process taking to the top. Yeah. So question to you, Spike, is um, how did you feel when the rights to Ricky Sanchez had an entire chapter devoted to it? What went through your mind when you, when you first heard that? It should have been two chapters. <laughs> um, when, uh, when, um, when, 
I, there, there were a lot of people writing books, you know, like uh, your own wrote the book and Jake Fisher's writing a book and Derek Bodner's writing a book. And when your own reached out, she was the first one writing the book. I was a little uh, suspicious of it because I didn't know him and he had only been around the team for a year and I was a little, and he wrote for Bleacher Report and I was like, who the fuck's this guy? I never heard of him. And, um, so I, I didn't to be, and I told you on this, I didn't really have very high expectations for the book. And, and as well, every time, you know, we had our first interview and then every time we would talk afterwards, he would keep asking me about my dad and like, I, like I would, I was just sort of fucking over it. And I told him I didn't want to answer questions anymore. And, um, and the book came out and I thought he did a really, uh, great job with it. I think there were a lot of things in, I think it told, you know, most of the people who have been through this are going to know a lot of the stuff that's in that book. Yeah. It's not really for us. It's for somebody who didn't follow it. But I think, I think if you did follow it, if you were around, there were enough nuggets in that book for things that people didn't know before. And I thought he captured what actually went wrong in a very fair way. Um, And I, I thought he did a great job of it. I, and I, I was kidding about thinking we needed two chapters, but I don't think that you can write that book or tell this story without us. And when I say us, I don't just mean Mike and I. I mean the the group of fans who stood by this. I think is an I think is a necessary part of the story because there are plenty of teams who have rebuilt in this way. The Astros rebuilt in this way. The Cubs rebuilt in this way. You know, like the Browns have just rebuilt in this way. This is not, Hinky did it to an extreme part, but like rebuilding is not new. What is new to me was that there were a group of fans who were like, I don't give a shit if they suck. This is the right thing to do. And not only is it the right thing to do, but we're going to fight with people about it being the right thing to do. And not only that, we're going to take the guy who's doing it and make him like our leader, you know, in Sam. And I don't think, I don't think all of this, I don't think there is a book without that group of people. I think it's just a rebuild. It's just money. But that book's been written, you know, like Moneyball was written. That, that book was written a decade ago. There's nothing new about that story. What's new is the fan buy-in and, and that sort of controversy. And I, I'm glad that your own not only wrote the chapter about us, but used us sort of as narrators to an extent after we were introduced. But I think it's necessary. I, 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 don't, I don't think this story is this story without that. Um, so I was glad that he did it and I think he did a good job on it. But I also thought it was, I don't think, I don't think it's fun to tell the story without the people who are wearing Hinky as Jesus t-shirts. You know, like I, I just don't think the story is nearly as good. I think that's a good point to kind of pivot here because you got a lot into that. And, you know, you're obviously very passionate, especially about the process, but there's another passion of yours that you have. You're a big advocate for humane treatment of animals. So would you mind elaborating a little bit on why that's a passion of yours? It's basically because of my dog. Um, I, I never wanted a dog. I never had a dog. And my, my wife wanted a dog and we adopted my dog, uh, like, five years ago and um, having him and I had already have a cat um, having him. I think having him and getting older, I'm 43 at this point uh, you start to look at life and your life and the things around you in a different way. And um, looking at him and uh, like caring for him. And then like, I don't know if you have dogs, but the love that, that he was able to show back and the companionship really made me start to think about and I'm working with a couple of local shelters, um, justice rescue and then Providence animal center. And now Brandywine Valley SPCA too. Um, like th- these are animals that, uh, like have no ill will toward anything. Um, and, and like they, I've seen them, you know, having a pet can help with anxiety. It can help with depression. It can teach you responsibility. Um, and seeing that, that the rough, life that so many of them go through just to have somewhere to live that feeds them and takes care of them was something that I felt like was, um, uh, was something that I, I felt like I could help with, 
you know, um, and was something that I could use our audience and our voice to show to show that we could do something about it and help. And I, I think the people that work at their shelters are um, uncommon in their devotion and uh, for, for things other than themselves. And they work so hard and put so much heart into it that us just raising money and, uh, and you know, awareness is a, v- a very small part of that. And also in, in that time I've become vegan and I uh, like, you know, there's humane, not just humane treatment of pets, but there's humane treatment of animals elsewhere, which I try not to push on people because then it becomes personal and people get defensive about that sort of thing. But it all, it all really just came from my dog. Do you miss, and do you miss meat a little bit, Spike? I don't No, I don't. It, it was a, um, like it just snapped. I, I, I was, I, I tell the story. I was on vacation in Lewis, Delaware with my wife and I had my dog hey, sitting next to me. Hey, I'm from Delaware. Ah, uh, there you go. Awesome. Um, yeah. and, uh, a big fan of Delaware beaches, especially Lewis. Um, and we were, um, I was just sitting in the living room of the place we were renting with my dog and I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw this video of like this chimp that was like 40 years old or something. And, and like wouldn't eat and was dying and, and saw its reaction when one of its caretakers from like years and years and years before came and that the, it smiled and started eating just because that person was there. And like, I just looked at my dog and I was like, what is the difference between any of these animals? Like, like uh, pigs are really smart, like arguably smarter than dogs are. Um, and then when you start seeing like, I, I almost, it's funny. I've, I've changed so much in that I have, I used to be really anti hunting and hunters and I would never do it at this point, but, but at least hunters to me know what they're doing and like, like see the process and are like, are willing to be involved in the process. And like, are like, whereas regular people are not. And there's just like a factory farm somewhere where thousands and thousands and thousands of animals are slaughtered in like damp factories with workers working on top of each other. And we don't want to know where it came from. And to (laughs) me, that's like, that's almost, I think that's worse than hunters actually. So, so when that snapped, I'm sorry, just to wrap it up. When that, when that snapped, you're like, I, the idea of eating meat was no longer like interesting to me. Yeah, I I tried to do. I saw a documentary. It's called Food Inc. It's oh like yeah, Food Inc. Will get you. Yeah. yeah I, after I watched that, guys, I said I'm done. And I actually, yeah. I was proud of myself. I went two weeks without yeah. any meat, but I would just get so hungry more quickly. And it was just, I was like, I would drive past Wendy's, and it would just, I'm driving. Every day I got a little bit harder. I said, oh, just get some, <laughs> I get some fries. So I get some fries, but then you smell that burger. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I went back. I couldn't well, take it. It's different. I, so I did it in 2010 and, uh, and I only lasted a year. And um, it's a different, it's, it's easier now because everywhere you go now, if you just tell the waiter, if you go to a restaurant, hey, I'm vegan, they're like, okay you get this, 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 and this, and we can make this vegan and we can make this vegan. And you go to the grocery store and there's like, not like impossible burgers or whatever, or they're not good for you, but animals didn't die. So like, um, there are way more options now than there were then. It's easier, I would say in 2020 than it was when you tried it in 2012, but food ink forks over knives. Like there's a lot of movies out there that oh, yeah. if you watch it, it'll, yeah. it'll get to you. Yeah. So a few things that I want to add there. First, I do have a dog. My daughter, we got it for my one-year-old daughter, and she named the dog Cat. So his name is Cat Wolfiums. Oh, that's <laughs> classic. Secondly, I love I, that. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, secondly, uh, I'm from Georgetown, Delaware, and I used to go to Lewis all the time growing up. So that's that's awesome. a fun little nugget there. Yeah, it's and, a great uh, place. Thirdly, yeah, it is. Uh, Lewis is great. I love it. Um, great beach for little kids, no, no big waves. Yeah. Um, but the third thing is I actually don't eat meat, and it's primarily because I don't like the texture or taste of meat in general. So that's just oh, – that's a little – yeah. yeah, it's just – I just – it's never been a thing for me. My parents always tried to get me to eat meat growing up. I just never really liked it. So that's, that's, uh, that's my way of, I guess, being – helping, you know – 
cut and, down on. And by the way, like I, I don't judge anyone who does. Like I, I don't. I, I try not to. I try not to even talk about it too much because I think it's weird how personal what people eat is to them, and they they get they like want to argue with you about it, and like <laughs> everything becomes like, like I get I get called names because I don't eat meat. Like I, I don't want to engage with any of that. This is, this is for me and the decision that I made. So I just want to be clear on that. No, and I totally understand that. But let's let's we, we let's get into this. I listened to the Embiid interview. It was a great interview, and this is something that we definitely need to talk about. So, can you kind of tell us how that came about? Because in the interview, you said it was you know it was a long time coming. So, how did you exactly reach out to Embiid, and uh, how, how long was that process? It was uh, a couple of years. <laughs> we talked about it. Um, but I like. You know, I've been doing this a long time and I have a lot of relationships and I um, uh, ended up, you know, like there's not a ton of agencies uh, that, that players are represented by and Embiid is represented by CAA and, um, you know, uh, Covington is CAA, uh, Mike Scott, I think is CAA. Um, so I ended up knowing uh, people within that and we had always been so synonymous with Joel specifically and had seen him at events and he was aware of us and all those sorts of things. So I started a couple of years ago, just trying to get him to, we wanted him at an event. We wanted him at a live show. And the problem is that Joel is just not big on planning things and you can't sell tickets to a live show without knowing the person's going to be there. Um, and you need like six weeks or two months of assuredness. So we could never make it happen. And then the, the other thing was that Mike isn't here in Philly. So it could have been a situation where one day they could have called us and said, hey, Joe's willing to do it this afternoon. Can you come down? And it's a lot different to say we need Joel in front of a laptop. You know, we, I, Mike needs to be available who's in Los Angeles and, and a different. So it just never worked. And I, I think just being in Orlando, they just have less to do. <laughs> and, uh, and it just became easier to schedule because he just has fewer things on the schedule. So I was just really, uh, I was glad that it happened. I was glad that he, you know, we didn't want a 10 minute interview. We didn't want a 15 minute interview. We wanted enough time to be able to talk to him. And I think if you watch, it's on YouTube too. I think if you watch the YouTube, you can see him sort of smiling and laughing through the whole thing. And you could tell he had a good time. So I was glad, you know, I did, we didn't want to ask him the same questions everybody else did. And I was glad that he had a good time. Uh, and I was glad for everybody who's listened to us, who I think deserves to have heard him on with us. So that, that pod episode, you just went straight into the interview. You didn't mess around. There yeah, was that's, no, along that, with the guy, <laughs> he went yeah. right into it. Yeah, that was Mike's idea. Mike, Mike said we should just go get right in, get right into it. So that's yeah. what we did. Most definitely. So I guess, uh, and you kind of touched on, you know, how I was smiling, but, and you talked about, you know, after he came off the interview, you guys kind of talked about how, uh, you know, you didn't want to fish for, you know, didn't want to ask questions where you didn't think you would get a genuine answer. But overall, how was it, uh, how was, how did it feel actually interviewing you through, throughout that process? Well, it's kind of weird, you know, because um, he's just a guy, you know, and He's uh, he's not a guy who, you know, we have Andrew Yang on or Daryl Morey or Chuck Klosterman. And these are people who are specifically known for what they say. You know, like they are talkers. That's what they do. Uh, Chuck writes. Daryl Daryl talks a lot. Um, Andrew Yang like ran for president. These are people. But Joel plays basketball. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't have interesting things to say. It just means that not everybody is like super pumped to talk for 45 minutes in a performative way. So I was just, I just wanted him to enjoy himself. Like I wanted him to know that he was in a, a, a place that was safe with people who cared about him and that it was going to be listened to by those same sorts of people. Like that's the only thing that mattered to me. I can, uh, I, I can say Spike that just knowing how long you had waited to get him on the pod, mm -hmm. it just seemed very, he felt very comfortable right off the bat. You guys hit him with the, Oh, when's Dario coming over? And he right. got it. It was, right. it was a good chemistry you guys had. I, I definitely think he enjoyed himself. Yeah. And I think the fact that he's like, 
he's like a guy who's like very online. Um, and, and you could, you knew that he would, um, what's it called? Uh, you knew that he would get those jokes. Like I, I had no, no question that he would get the Dario joke. Like none, zero. <laughs> um, so, and that was, we wanted to try to get him in a place where he, he knew right off the bat that we were, we were just in to have a good time and not corner him or anything like that. So I think the good thing about Joel, one thing that I noticed is that like, you don't have to ask him the hard question. You just have to ask him the normal question and give him the time to answer it. And, and if you ask him the normal question, then he will take the time to give you the, the answer. You, you just don't need to drill down. And we had the advantage, right? Like most uh, basketball writers are surrounded. There's like six of them, seven of them, eight of them at once all around his locker. We were alone with him essentially in his hotel room in, or, in Orlando. And that's a, a different thing. It gave us a great advantage in that. So, and I, I think you guys, you guys got the quote of the year. You guys got him to say what everyone's been wanting him to say for three years. I want to spend the rest of my career with Ben. And you guys got that. No, no Ramona Shelburne. She didn't get it. Uh, Stephen A. didn't get it. You guys got that. And I think it's because a testament to, to the dedication and the loyalty that you've shown to the team. And I think yeah. Embiid appreciates that. Yeah, I think so too. And, and by the way, we never asked him, do you want to spend the rest of your career with, with, with Ben? And do you want to, your own team? Like, we didn't ask him that. He just said it. Like, we, we asked him other questions that we thought he would be interested in, and he said that. And I think that was, um, I wouldn't know whether it's true or not, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, we did, we did get that answer, and that was the, yeah. the, the quote that sort of took off from there. So, Spike, in your interview with Embiid, you did, uh, which was weirder, and you know he he pleaded the fifth a couple of times, but we I don't think you're going to do that with us. So I, I I'm going to ask you about three, which was weirder. So what was weirder, drafting three centers three years in a row, or trading the reigning rookie of the year? Which was weirder? Um, I would say the three centers is probably weirder. Um, I was not Noka for a guy. I understood what he was doing. I I even understand best available player, but to not try, remember, not just, just draft three centers in a row, but three centers in the top six was, was Nerland six and Okafor was three and, yeah. and Bede was three. Like that, that was fucking crazy. Like the, 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 um, the MCW thing was not crazy to us. It was only crazy to everybody else. I th- the three centers thing was pretty crazy to everybody. So that, I think that was weirder. I think that's fair for me too. I think drafting the three centers, I did. I'll be honest, I was praying back then, because I'm not a big fan of European players, I was praying that we didn't get Kristaps uh, Porzingis, which obviously mm. would have been great now. But Yeah, might have been all right. Uh, I, didn't, I, don't, I forget, who was even the fifth pick of that draft? Was it Mario Hizania? Uh, no, Hizania was later than fifth, wasn't he? No, I think he was. Wasn't he Orlando's pick? So wasn't that like top five? I, I, don't, I don't remember. I he was number five. Yeah, I'm totally on the same page with you and Spike. And, and just to uh, clear up, Hazonia was the number five pick, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Holly Stein was number six. So oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, not 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 great, not great at five or six either. Yeah. To be honest with you, so. But uh, so so moving on, which was weirder, Markel's broken jumper or Jimmy Butler's recent appearance on JJ Reddick's podcast and what he had to say about Brown and the. Yeah, <laughs> Markel. Jimmy Butler is there's there's uh, Jimmy Butler has always been a fucking asshole, and uh, <laughs> I knew that would trigger him. Yeah, <laughs> him. we I, were just waiting. <laughs> there, there's there's nothing unexpected about Jimmy Butler or strange about Jimmy Butler. He's just an asshole. So. <laughs> there's assholes everywhere, guys. There's assholes everywhere. Uh, yeah, no, I think Markel's. I think we. I don't think there's still a straight answer on what exactly happened. Was it just the racic outlet syndrome? Was it the yips or was it his mom? There's a lot of different things that I honestly don't know if we'll ever really know. Yeah. 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 There's a lot. There's a lot. And, and the answer is never really as simple as we want it to be anyway. So. Well, I think the three things for me with Markel's shoulder makes me think it's the yips is one. He was doing one handed launches behind the, sh- behind the back uh, three point shots from the opposite end. So he had the strength there. He broke Embiid's face right yep. before the playoffs. 
And then he was doing, there's a video of him doing one armed handstands in yeah. front of the practice facility. So that right there tells me that they're just mentally, he's, there's something not right. And I, yeah. hope he, I, hope, I hope he gets his career together, but that's probably one of the most disappointing picks I think I'll ever experience outside of the Brad Doherty 85 debacle. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, not just a bad pick, but, but essentially trading like, like it's two picks, Yeah, you know? Yeah, no. And to be fair, that pick became what Romeo Langford. So we don't really know what's going to happen there, but right. um, yeah. moving on. Uh, so the last one, what was weirder? Sam Hinkie's manifesto resignation letter or Calangelo saying that he was absolved from burner gate? Oh, uh, wait. What was the first one? The second one was Calangelo saying he was absolved. What was the first one? Sam Hinkie's resignation letter. Oh, this Sam Hinkie's resignation letter. The, the, uh, I mean, that, I've never seen anything like that. And I, and I guess, I guess in uh, venture capitalists and like, in like that sort of finance world that people write letters like that, but I had never seen anything like that. Um, somebody denying that they did something wrong when they obviously did something wrong is America. So uh, I'm, I'm not at all surprised by Brian Colangelo, but he, the hinky thing was fucking weird. That letter is crazy. I mean, it's, it's awesome, but it's crazy. So I would say uh, hinky's letter by far. We're going to let you go, uh, Spike. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Chris, do you, you want to tell everybody where they can find Spike? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you can follow Spike on Twitter at Spike Eskin. Uh, Spike, do you want to maybe direct the, the listeners anywhere specific? No, the, all, all the links are at RiceRickySanchez.com. We have, uh, we have like the pod and the YouTube is all there. And we, uh, it's really cool. We, we started selling this new mask today. We found this um, local company called Buddha Babe that is owned by this Philly woman who like hand makes uh, kids pajamas. And... Uh, when the pandemic hit, she wasn't selling the pajamas anymore. So she decided to make these handmade masks uh, and they saved her business. And they're awesome. I have this one. It's so soft and nice. So we decided to sell them through her. And for every one we sell, she donates one to chop too. Um, so those are at our site too. They're really cool. They have uh, the Ricky logo and a dog and a basketball and a music note. So it felt like everything that we do. So that's, that's there, but that's it. Just go to our website. It's all there. Perfect. And yeah, again, Spike, we really appreciate you coming on. It, it was a big thrill for us. And sure. hopefully you can come on again um, in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. All right. Thanks, Spike. Thanks, guys. All right. So here we have our, actually is our Twitter poll of the week, but we're actually going to call it the social media poll of the week because we also post the same imaging question on Facebook. So most people, uh, when it came to the question of the week, which was, uh, who are who are the first three players that should come off the bench for the Sixers? And the five options were Alec Burks, uh, Glenn Robinson the third, Matisse Thibel, uh, Al Horford, and who's the fifth one, guys? Uh, Furkan Korkmaz in Korkmaz. Furkan yeah. Korkmaz. So um, a lot of people chimed in, and most people had Horford and Thibel in their first two or in their top three. But the one that stood out was people, oh, they're not sure about Furcon because of his three-point shooting. And then, of course, you had Alec Burks. I think because GR3 just got hurt, I think people kind of left him out the mix. But one uh, follower on Facebook of the Sixer Sense, John Pazlowski, he said, Horford Matisse, and then in all caps, he wrote, Alec Burks, give the man some respect. Yeah, I think he really just identifies with what Alec Burks brings to the team. As you saw last night, he hit uh, some some big three-pointers. So what do you guys think? Who would you bring off the bench first? Yeah, uh, I think obviously we all agree that Horford has to be it, not only because of you know, the fact that we need a backup center, but he's also getting probably getting paid more than any other bench player in the NBA right now. And that includes like Lou Williams. So in that sense, Al Horford has to be it, even though – while offensively he's looking better defensively, just it's not there. And uh, then Matisse Thibel, we know what he can do defensively. It's just whether or not he's a liability offensively, which he wasn't. I don't – he wasn't terrible last night, was he? I don't remember the exact sense, but I remember him hitting at least one or two shots, right? So that was positive. And then, and then the third one, I think I'm going to have to go 
I think I would have to go Burks too, just because it's nice to have another shot creator off the bench. Not saying Corkmaz can't do it, but he's still a little bit more streakier than Burks is. And uh, just Burks can bring ball handling. While they're both not great on defense, Burks is much more passable than Corkmaz is. Yeah, I, I think I agree as well. I think Horford's a lock, whether we like it or not, just because of who he is and what his reputation is. Um, and Matisse has to be number two, I think, as long as his defense holds up, which um, it did in the scrimmages. And it did um, at times last night. You know, the F- Sixers were a, a bit of a mess against Indiana, but I, I think they'll get back into things as these games go on. But, yeah, I think Horford and Matisse are the obvious two. I'm a bit down on Furkan right now. He hasn't looked great in Orlando, and he didn't look particularly great um, before the season was suspended those last few weeks either. So, yeah, I think it's either Burks or Glenn Robinson. I think those two are kind of interchangeable at this point for me. I I mean, I, I like Howell Neto, and I thought he did really well last night, but he's not obviously on that level. Uh, so I think I agree with our our Facebook commenter with John. So we're going to wrap this podcast up with some more talk about the playoffs and specifically what Chris Bosh recently had to say about the eventual winner of the NBA Finals. He essentially said that he personally will not consider it an asterisk um, for whoever wins. I'll read the quote here right now. Um, this is what Bosch said, quote, Some people are saying this year's championship is going to have an asterisk next to it. Hell no. It's legitimate. If anything, winning a championship during a pandemic will go down as one of the biggest achievements in the history of the game. Uh, Lucas, do you, you agree with Bosch's sentiments? That's not the first time somebody's echoed that either. Uh, I believe it was... Was it Stephen A. Smith that said it? I, I forget exactly. It was one of the big talking heads on ESPN that said it. And I, I tend to agree. I think it's obviously – I think it's going to be harder, and not not just from a physical standpoint of getting back into a game shape, but mentally just grueling it out with being mostly isolated. So I think that regard, I think it's going to be – I think there's no asterisks here. Yeah, for sure. I think in terms of whether it was like an easier road to the championship or something of that nature, definitely not. I wouldn't put an asterisk next to it for that reason. I think it's a tremendous accomplishment for whoever does win the finals, whether it's a team we don't expect like Toronto or Boston or Philly or whether it's, you know, the Lakers or the Bucks. I do think in a sense it it is worthwhile to point out just how different the circumstances are just because teams have lost players who wouldn't have been lost otherwise. Guys are healthier who wouldn't have been healthy otherwise. You know, case in point, Ben Simmons is back for Philly. He would have missed um, a quite a bit of time there if the season had gone on as planned. So I, I do think the different circumstances deserve to be pointed out. I, I don't think these are normal games necessarily. And again, there's no home court, so even the environment is different. So I, I, do, I do think there will be an asterisk per se uh, for those reasons, but I don't think it necessarily has to have a negative connotation. Like, I don't think it will take away from the accomplishment. It's just going to be a different, a different kind of accomplishment. Like I said, I think it's going I, I to be even harder, to be honest. But look, we'll have to wait and see, and hopefully like, – um, and, I, and I actually – you know, I don't think right now any – anything should be taken, you know, out of, you know, should go crazy, especially just for the Sixers, especially this is just one game. And while obviously there are some red flags there, I don't think we need to act like the world's ending yet. They still have seven games to get things right. I think we're going to see a better game plan from Brown. And just, I, I don't think we're going to have a player like, T, you know, TJ Warren, he, he can be an 18, 20 point score, but we're not going to see perimeter players play like that against us on a regular basis. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And and like Spike said, like everyone has said, this is probably the worst defensive performance we've seen from Ben in maybe his career. He's hopefully not going to be this bad again. I, I think this is really just rust more than anything else. I think the Sixers really have to have some stuff to, uh, to get together from that perspective. But it, I'm not panicking after this one game. I still think Philly would beat Indiana in a hypothetical seven-game series. And I still think the Sixers are pretty solid bets against someone like Miami or Boston. I don't know if I'm taking them in that kind of a series, but it's going to be competitive. I don't think this is, you know, some like end-all, be-all damnation of the 2019-20 ers You know, I think there's still still room for them to make some noise. I, I do think things will get better, especially with Shake. I don't think he's going to be this bad every night. Um, if he is, then the Sixers will have some problems, but I, I think this is kind of a one-off from him. 
he's normally much more composed from what we've seen in the past and what we saw from him at college. So, you know, in general, TJ was pe- pestering him all night long, and TJ can get into people's mm-hmm. heads. So I'm not really surprised. Yeah, by that. and and I do think it is worth noting that Shake is not, you know, a traditional point guard, and I think that's part of why Neto was so successful last night, if you can call it that. He didn't do a ton in terms of the box score, but just his ability to keep his dribble, to probe the inside, to get to the paint without picking up his dribble, to pass on the move. That's something the Sixers really don't have a ton of. And even if he's not scoring a ton, even if he's not doing, you know, a ton, even in the assist column, just his ability to move the ball, to get inside and do all those little things without turning the ball over is really valuable. And that's kind of why I'm still, you know, a fan of Neto. But I, I do think Shake will improve as this bubble season goes on. Thanks again to Spike for coming on. We, we really do truly appreciate it. And he was a great guest. And you should, of course, all go listen. Uh, to each and every new episode of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. It's a wonderful podcast. Him and Mike are both great as co-hosts, and I'm sure most people listening to our podcast are already aware of that fact. And for those listening here today, we really do appreciate it. Again, I know this is a very tough time in a lot of people's lives right now, so you spending you know an hour with us to talk Sixers basketball truly means the world. We're excited for this season to keep on going. And we're excited to bring you another fun episode next week. And we'll see you around.